You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey, 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 episode 63 today with Hannah Gans. I am so excited about this one. Just a brief moment about Hannah. She is a family nurse practitioner. So she's currently based in Israel and in the summer is a family nurse practitioner and pediatric nurse practitioner in the U.S., Um, but her year round job is managing mostly adult populations with acute and chronic conditions. She's also an intuitive eating counselor. So does intuitive eating counseling on the side. So what three jobs here anyways. So I'm very excited about this podcast episode. It was mostly born out of our response to a podcast episode that we listened to on Barry Weiss's podcast, her podcast, honestly. And Barry is somebody who I really, really respect and enjoy her journalism. She is somebody who is not afraid to say anything. And she usually comes at it with obviously then from the most honest perspective and whether or not I agree with her on specific topics, I deeply, deeply respect her and really enjoy her work. This particular podcast was something to do with food. And I think I talk about this in the interview, how originally I wasn't going to listen to it. And then people were talking about it and I'm like, okay, fine. I'm going to listen to it. And surprisingly, I didn't disagree with a lot of it. There was plenty of it that I did disagree with and plenty of it that I didn't. So Hannah and I talk about what we disagree with, what we actually agree with, and how we might actually be talking about two different things while it seems like we might be, you know, disagreeing or or contradicting each other, we're just coming at something from two different perspectives. So definitely a fiery conversation, a fun one, and answering some of the questions I know you have, and I know most people don't talk about. So let's just go. I am so excited to do this conversation. I've been having it in my mind ever since I listened to Barry's podcast. So first of all, thank you, Hannah, for joining me. I am very, very excited again, obviously, as you can tell. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. So just a little background. We're doing this conversation, whatever, I guess we can call it a conversation, as a response to a podcast episode that we heard from Barry Weiss. And do you remember the name of the podcast episode? I remember it was like really... Yeah. It was called Eating Ourselves to Death. And in it, she interviewed Dr. Casey Means. Okay. So, I mean, you know, the title sort of says it for itself. It was the kind of thing where when I found it on my feed, I was like, yeah, that's not my thing. I'm not going to listen to it. And then part of this larger intuitive eating community was talking about it that we're both part of. Then I was like, "Mm, I guess I'm going to listen to it. And then I had lots of responses and surprisingly not that many pissed off ones. So I'm just excited to go through it. Um, and some of our reactions, maybe before we jump into that, maybe Mm -hmm. share a bit about who you are and you know, the work that you do. Sure. Okay. So I'm a nurse practitioner, family nurse practitioner, which means I'm also a registered nurse. I've practiced in 
cardiac units in both of the states as well as in Israel. I currently live in Israel as a registered nurse. And as a nurse practitioner, I practice in kind of like pediatric urgent care, which I do every summer. I go back to New York and, and practice there. While I'm in Israel, I practice family medicine as a family nurse practitioner. Um, so mostly working with adults with different kinds of, of chronic chronic conditions. In addition to that, I'm also an intuitive eating counselor. <laughs> That's something I did on my own. So I have my own my own counseling business there. And that kind of happened on the side of all of that. So, yeah. So you're, so you're a busy woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eh, not so much. <laughs> but I, I love that combination. Most of the people that I talk to are therapists or dietitians, a sprinkling of some other people, but like mostly therapists and dietitians. And it's refreshing to see someone in the medical profession who is also an intuitive eating counselor. So uh -huh, yeah. why we're talking. Well I, <laughs> well, I actually didn't take the course originally to practice the counseling portion of it. I took it because I was so interested in it for myself um, because I had my own journey with food that was so complicated. And, um, you know, I yo-yo dieted for like a decade. And then I remember this one morning, I was just like, never again. And I kind of did the intuitive eating journey on my own before I realized it existed. When I discovered it existed, I was like, whoa, I got to get in on this. <laughs> <laughs> and so I learned it all before I even started counseling. Once I you know, once I learned it all and then I was seeing patients at the same time and conversations did start coming up about, about their bodies and their eating and their weight, I was like, oh, this actually does need to be counseled, um, in, in a more mm -hmm. like real and honest and communicative way. So uh, that's what actually brought me into, um, um, practicing counseling intuitive eating. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, also the opportunity that it affords you in terms of more of an informal setting, meaning it's, this is, they're coming in for some sort of medical purpose, I'm assuming. And then a lot of doctors or nurse practitioners or whoever the person is would talk about weight. Oh, you have to lose weight. Oh, you have to watch. Oh, you have to move more. Oh, you have to this. That's the sort of start and end of the conversation, which usually leaves people worse off than they had started. So it's, you know, it's refreshing to have somebody in the medical field who's looking at this with a lot more nuance. Yeah, totally. These patients come in, any patient I'm going to tell to go on a diet or exercise, I say that with quotation marks. With air quotes, yeah, um, people don't see it. <laughs> is, you know, they know, like, you think they've never been told that before or they never thought of it on their own, like, the, right. the, you know, it's so funny that like, more credit. <laughs> <laughs> like doctors and practitioners, they, they think they like check the box of like, okay, I told my patient to go on a diet. Like I did what I was supposed to do without actually engaging in real conversation with them, you know, without actually asking them, like, have you tried that before? Has it worked for you? Like, what's your relationship with your body? What's your relationship with eating? And yeah, they have a lot more to say than we give them credit for. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So let's start with, um, and just for context, if, if people want to hear the episode before they listen to our response, they can go do that now and then come back to our conversation. We'll start off with what we actually agree with, because it's sort of what I was alluding to before. I was surprised that I wasn't entirely pissed off by the entire thing and that I, I actually agreed with a bunch of it. So let's first focus on that. What do you agree with both of them? Sure. Yeah, I do. I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I want to preface this whole podcast by just saying that, like, I don't find her words to be like contradicting or even threatening at all. So, mm -hmm. you know, she happened to have pivoted her stance against 
the health at every size and intuitive eating community. Um, I just think that maybe there's some misunderstanding as to what it is that we're promoting because we are, we are not in contradiction to what she was saying. So yeah, I'll go into exactly what I agreed with her. Um, first of all, she had a lot to say about how the system is broken. And in that regard, like undoubtedly the system is broken. She said that a lot of the the medical doctors in their training are taught to look at the specific diagnoses or the specific symptoms and treat those instead of treating the entire person and having it kind of health focused. You know, they they have more of like a disease treatment as opposed to like health promotion. In that regard, first of all, I'm a nurse practitioner. So I do think nurse practitioners have a little bit more training in health promotion as opposed to medical doctors, just because we were once nurses. So we are a little bit more in the, like the holistic care world, but a hundred percent, like, of course I want to promote health. I don't want this to just be like, Oh, you have this disease. Let's do this. You have this symptom. Let's do that. Like, of course I want to look at the whole person in that regard. I'm completely on board with Dr. Means. I do also want to let her know that while systems are broken, the people who work inside these systems aren't. Yeah. <laughs> like I I know so many good doctors who like aren't just gonna look at all the symptoms and, and treat them differently and, and not look at the whole picture. Like there are really good doctors out there who are really trying to promote health, who really want to see a whole patient, a whole patient. So in that regard, like, okay, the system's broken, yeah. the people aren't well, it's also possible that because of the limitations in the system within the system, even really good people don't have the capacity to do what they want to do based on healthcare and financial and whatever else the limitations are. So for sure. Yes. Agree that that's the case, perhaps not coming from sort of a malicious place, but it just ends up being that way. And that is a much more systemic issue than personal. Totally. Especially here in Israel um, where the medicine is socialized. I once um, was precepted by an OBGYN. She had five minutes per patient. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, and if not, if they're, if she's not going at that pace, you have to wait four months to see an, an OBGYN, in which case, if you're pregnant, you know, you got to wait till you're in your second trimester. Like it's crazy. Oh my God. Yeah. So wow. like, it, people it, in America talk about like, let's socialize medicine. Well, it just comes at the same with time, the... <laughs> I'm pro socializing medicine. Our medicine system here still works better than in the States, but yeah, separate conversation. <laughs> oh, I for sure agree with you. It's just, uh, let's, let's take everything and not just one part of it. <laughs> totally. totally. Oh my God. I can't believe five minutes. So you're saying yeah. that it's not, it's, it's not the individual, which actually makes the issue a lot bigger, mm-hmm. seem bigger than it is because we're talking about systemic or potentially government sort of issues as opposed to let's talk to individuals and see how we can reform this. Yeah. Similar to how we have to talk to individual patients. We also have to see individual doctors and and the constraints that they're under in terms of the institutional failures. Like I completely agree that they're not doing enough, that definitely they need to be working on getting all kinds of foods accessible to all kinds of people. I think farmed foods should be subsidized. I agree that pharmaceutical companies shouldn't be funded by like sugar companies, you know, like there's a lot of bias and and ugly Mm -hmm. and greed that goes on in the institutional and a hundred percent, like the the, the stuff is ugly and and it should be fixed. And, and similar to what you said, these failures are at the institutional or systemic level. And, and I'm bringing it down to the individual, you know, we have to be more careful when we're talking to individuals, if it's not an individual problem. 
Exactly. I think and we can get to this in a little bit just to sort of bring a lot more detail before we have the argument here. But there is there is a, a lot of the question of, OK, what do I do about this if there are so many institutional failures and food companies, really, really large corporations that are partnering with individuals or gar- uh, partnering with potentially government officials? We don't know not any sort of conspiracy theory sort of thing, but like, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes. We don't know about it. And we're the individual who walks into the store and, you know, is subject to the marketing, uh, et cetera, whatever we see on TV. So there's a big question of there are all these truths and what, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, all this information that's coming out there, telling people about the systemic and institutional failures. It's like, what are we supposed to do with that? You know, does it send you down a frenzy of like, well, now I can't trust anything and I can't put anything in my body. Every, you know, everything's going hell. Like, what are we, what are we supposed to do? Those waters get, get dangerous also. Yeah. And we can talk a little bit more about that after um, we bring some more information. Like I said, let's maybe Mm -hmm. transition to the pieces of the podcast where we potentially disagreed or sort of came at things from a different angle. I guess I'll start with some of her statistics. I felt were a little bit skewed. She kept talking about this growing, unhealthy American body. If you do like a quick CDC search on Google, you'll find that like actually rates of heart disease are are decreasing and and hypertension's decreasing and our life expectancy is not going down. She's right that obesity levels are going up, but if all the other health indicators are not going up, we have to question like, you know, what what negative effects is this bigger body having? She had mentioned that 93% of people have metabolic dysfunction. I mean, that's an astonishingly high number. That means that like, you don't even know one in 10 people who are healthy, you know? Yeah. So, so oh my God. Like, that, like what, what are we supposed to do with that? And then she said 42% of those, that 93% are obese, which means more than half is not obese, mm-hmm. which means that there's plenty of normal normal weight, again, air quotes, people who um, are walking around their metabolic and healthy, which it, to me just kind of proves like if you're going to walk into a doctor's office and the doctor's only going to talk to you if you're in the overweight obese category, when really there are so many other kinds of people in different kinds of bodies who have a, who are unhealthy, then like, then, then what are we even talking about here? It's kind of what. Exactly. Yeah. If we're talking yeah. about metabolic dysfunction, that's a really significant conversation to have. But if the indicator is your weight, then according to her numbers, we're losing 50% of the people that we should be talking to. And totally. You know, yeah. That's a little scary. I mean, I do think that there's <laughs> numbers that you can pull for any point you want to make. So there's always a take this with a grain of salt, even the numbers that we potentially would share. So, so this is just sort of like a disclaimer when anybody shares numbers, when anybody shares uh, success or failure rates. It's always take it with a grain of salt. You can do your own research if you'd like, but there is this sort of idea that she was sort of, I guess her point was that more people these days are in the obese category than they have been. And what she's saying is that there are so many different factors that contribute to that. Ultimately, that's a really bad thing we have to address. I think part of what I grapple with is that as much as some of the numbers are exaggerated or even untrue, I wouldn't know. It does seem to be the case 
that, I mean, and maybe this is just because everyone's talking about it. So I believe it, but like, it does seem to be the case that there are so many more people in the obese category. And there are so many more people that just sort of are dealing with a lot of these quote, not, this is not actually a quote, this is actual health problems than before. And it's such an easy answer to say, oh, we're eating too much. We're eating the wrong foods. I don't know. What are your thoughts on some of that? Um, so yeah, I do think it's important to differentiate that we are becoming a larger nation. I'm talking about America. <laughs> Removing yourself because <laughs> you live across the Atlantic. <laughs> I just said we, and I was like, wait. <laughs> yeah, we're becoming a larger nation, and we have to um, keep that separate from the fact that we're becoming a sicker nation. Because I do want to doubt that that we're becoming a sicker nation. I don't know that that's true. Mm-hmm. There are definitely correlations between obesity and disease, but they're not necessarily causations. Mm-hmm. And until we're sure of causations, we have to be wary of what the conversation sounds like. So yeah. for example, let's take diabetes, which is the classic. It's known that higher weight has a correlation with diabetes, but there are studies that show that before people develop weight gain, they actually have insulin resistance first. So there's, you know, this rise in insulin in the body that then makes the body react by with weight gain. And then the diabetes will develop. Now, if we're only measuring it at the diabetes level, we're going to go blame it on, on the weight gain, right? Mm-hmm. We're not going to blame it on what happened prior to that. What causes something prior to that? There can be so many things. Uh, it could be diet. It could be genetics. It could be stress. It could be so many things. Again, these are correlations, not causations. And it's just important kind of that way before we just blurt out these, these uh, sentences that make people crazy and nervous and afraid to live and afraid to shop in their supermarket. You know, we, we have to put everything into context. Yeah. Well, not to put you on the spot here. Um, <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. Uh, <laughs> if let's say we're talking about classic diabetes, insulin resistance, and potentially that that's, you know, sort of the beginning of all of this. So many people in the classic medical field are very quick to blame processed foods, whatever they, whatever they define that as, um, high sugar content foods, what, however they define that. Does insulin resistance have to do with what we're eating? I'm sure it does. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that's a part of it. You know, it would be like a lie if we were just because I'm taking the intuitive eating health at every size point of view to say that like, oh, food has nothing to do with our health. Like, come on, let's call a spade a spade. Food has to do with our health. The reason why I think intuitive eating and health at every size is an important response to the facts and to the science is because science is telling us the what's. It's giving us the facts. This is not good for your body, right? And intuitive eating is coming in and answering the question, well, what now? Mm -hmm. Because- yeah. People hear information about what's good or not good for their body and they go on a diet. And studies show that, you know, 80 to 90% of diets fail. So I can imagine myself as a provider giving a patient a medication and saying, take this for a year and 90% chances it's not going to work. In fact, your levels are just going to probably get worse than they were before. So, but try it, you know, it's like I would never, <laughs> ever tell someone that. And that's kind of what providers are doing all the time when they're telling patients like, Oh, you have, you have Mm -hmm. this disease, this, you know, go on a diet, go exercise. It's like, we're literally giving them a prescription that's, that's destined for failure. So, 
So intuitive eating comes in and says, well, what do we do? Like, what do we do with the fact that foods are unhealthy for us? How do we then develop a healthy relationship with food? It's like, again, science and medicine is telling us like which foods are healthy and intuitive eating is telling us like how to have a healthy relationship with food. Yeah. Well, because I think also, and this is something we talked about offline is that Part of what it sounds like the assumption is that Dr. Means was coming from is that a lot of this comes from misinformation or just lack of information. And that if you just knew this stuff I was about to tell you, then obviously you would just do, what did she say? Like 15 burpees in the middle of the day or something like that. Um, (laughs) Something, you know. Just hold on. Let me just go do my 15 burpees. (laughs) You're not squatting right now. (laughs) And I did it right before the podcast. Yeah. But anyways, there's this idea of like, okay, we just have to share the information and then, and then it'll click when in reality, that's not really the case. Totally. My patients who come in who are on the larger body spectrum, they know more about nutrition than anyone else. They have been on so many diets. They know how many grams of fat per serving. They know calories. They know everything about nutrition. They know the diet world, you know? So like telling them go on a diet without even asking them, have you tried that before? It's ridiculous, you know? Mm -hmm. And she even said it herself. She was like, oh, um, Michelle Obama had her, her let's get moving. I think was the name of her movement. Mm -hmm. Um, I may be wrong on the name of the movement and it didn't work, you know, exactly. It's like, these things aren't working. Spreading the information isn't enough. Like usually it's like, the more you, the more, you know, the better you do. I don't know the exact quote, but it's like, there's something here that that's not clicking. It's like where the Mm -hmm. brain and the rationale and the information is not enough to affect sustainable change. So just continuing that flow of like more information, more information, more information. What are we doing with that? Are we responding with a, Oh, thank you for telling me that I'm going to go make healthier choices. Or are we responding with a, Oh my God, I'm the worst. I can't, trust myself, you know, let me go listen to what other people are telling me how to eat. And that just propagates a very unhealthy, vicious cycle. Yeah. I think this is a good barometer. So when you finish the podcast or when you had finished the podcast, for those of you who already listened to it, what was your reaction? And if your reaction was any form of anxiety of, Oh my God, I'm doing things wrong. Or I didn't do my 15 burpees today or whatever it is then yeah, perhaps not that helpful because ultimately the anxiety and stress has a lot more to do with your health than the one workout. Something that I actually really appreciated was when Barry asked her a bunch of questions at the end about things that she would, either she would like to change or just the things that are the most quote healthy in her life. The first few things she was talking about had nothing to do with her eating. It was her sleep and her stress or something. It was definitely sleep over there. And I, I really love that. I was like, after this whole conversation about, you know, blood glucose and insulin resistant and all that, the answers really are, uh, how is your quality of life? How stressed mm-hmm. are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Also at the end, she went through her kind of like advice list to what she would give to the listeners. And oh, was that um, what it was? Okay. Yeah. It was like move more and, and sleep better and manage your stress and, you know, eat more nutrient dense foods. And I'm like, that's literally what we're aligned with as well. Like there is no Mm -hmm. contradiction to what we want for our people. We all want that. We want to promote health. It's just that our picture of health is bigger than like, does this 
food have a healthy effect on my body? It's like, am I in a healthy relationship with food? Meaning like, I, I love all these like Instagram accounts that show like healthy food, a salad, unhealthy relationship with food, being obsessed over the fact that I ate 16 almonds and not 14 almonds. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> it's like all these unhealthy coping mechanisms and behaviors that we have around food that to me is like, that's a much bigger picture of health that we need to be focusing on, you know, health, which includes like freedom from addictions and freedom from ob- obsessive thinking and, and, and compulsions. Yeah. Yeah, which is also, I think, even in the beginning when they're introducing some of the topics, I think Barry had mentioned something about a healthy at every size, which is actually just one letter off, but not at all what health at every size is talking about, that we're not saying everybody is healthy at every size. Like, that's no, that's that's actually untrue. So maybe let's talk about a little bit about intuitive eating, health at every size, and what it is, mostly in the Mm -hmm. context of how it doesn't contradict a lot of this science stuff. Totally. Okay. I love that question. Um, intuitive eating is based on the premise that our bodies really do have their own innate wisdom that you don't need any external barometer or voice or rule that tells you what's good for your body. You know, I, I use the, this example with my clients. It's like, imagine if you had um, a, a little meter on your wrist that's telling you like, oh, it's time for you to pee. It's time for you to go to the bathroom. And it's like, that would be ridiculous. Like we know what that feels like and we act accordingly. So intuitive eating is premised on the belief that, that our bodies actually know what to eat. That when we were once children, we knew that we weren't going to put another spoonful in our mouth because we know what our, when our body says enough, you know, we know which foods make our bodies feel and function optimally. So learning how to listen to those cues is, is crucial. And part of that is eliminating all of the external voices that are telling us how to eat in order to increase your internal cues. You have to shut down the external cues. Other things that people misunderstand about intuitive eating, people kind of think we're like this rumspringa, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's a great way to put it. It's like never going to diet again. Just go eat whatever you want, and it's like it's not what we're talking. It's really not what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> you know, we're not we're not trying to encourage impulsive eating. We're trying to encourage intuitive eating. Intuitive eating is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of listening. It's a real slowing down. It's not a speedy rampage. Yeah. You know, so we're not actually saying to go to the grocery store and buy out the entire ice cream section and just have it because you can. That's yeah. That's impulsive. That's well, you know. yes. And there is a part of people's intuitive eating journey that sometimes needs to include that that little stint, just because restriction is really a strong force. Restriction backfires, and it's very, very powerful in the human psyche. When people feel that they can't have a certain food, they want it. So in the beginning of intuitive eating, we do tell people that they can have the foods that they once restricted. The goal of that is to take that food from this like glorified, forbidden, sinful food to just food. It takes away the morality. And in doing so, you know, the idea is that ultimately like nobody actually wants to eat four pints of ice cream in, in a row. Like that does hurt. It does physically hurt. I yeah. think unless you, unless it doesn't hurt you, in which case present to hate. No, that, that definitely hurts. And I think also part of what intuitive eating is saying that is that 
We're not saying that four pints of ice cream does the same thing for your cellular processes and for your glucose and all that stuff as, you know, chicken and rice. Like we know that that's not the case. The question is, how do you feel about the ice cream and how does that like sort of dictate your life? Are you able to get to a place where you can have, you know, one to a couple of servings? Let's be real. A half a cup is not a serving of ice cream. (laughs) Agreed. But that there's so much more that goes into why you're eating, why you're not eating, and what happens to your body, as opposed to just doing like a finger prick and seeing what happens after you've consumed it. Yeah. I just think that the information is inside of your body. I really have that that deep belief. And also listening to the information that's that's inside of your body, um, when you practice that, that's the only place for sustainable change. Because you're always going to be with yourself. Diet fads will come and go. People's voices will change. People's opinions will change. Medicine's going to change a hundred times between now and when you die. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and I'm not saying like, go run into the forest, (laughs) (laughs) you know, vaccinate people. But, um, (laughs) but, but I am saying that, you know, there is information that we do have inside of our bodies and, and that is really helpful, useful information that we should be listening to. Yeah. There's this one thing that stood out to me and I was sort of trying to grapple with what an appropriate answer is, like not an emotional answer. They were talking about the comparison between foods with, I think it was like high fructose corn syrup or just quote processed foods and how they affect the body in comparison to cigarettes. And then putting the sort of warning label on, you know, just what they were doing with the cigarette companies. And then, you know, there are a lot of parallels in terms of like who is funding the research and things like that. But I guess I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of responding to the comparison to some of these foods and cigarettes. Like you're asking, should we be putting warnings on like high fructose corn syrup labels? Well, you know, I think that we shouldn't be, but I guess, you know, <laughs> coming at it from that logic, I think the question is coming with the premise that somebody is thinking the cigarette does the same kind of harm to the body than as these foods, which I think, you know, maybe to jumpstart your thought process, part of where my mind was going is like, we don't actually need cigarettes for our health. We do need food. And if food is being packaged in a way or being processed in a way that isn't, you know, the most health promoting way that it can be is part of another question. But, you know, it, it, I grapple with a comparison is sort of what I'm saying. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. You, you did make an important point. Um, one in that everybody does need to eat. We need to eat, you know, so you can't just do this cold Turkey thing with food and say like, I'm never putting this food in my mouth again. Like it's not going to happen. We realistically, um, the second thing is that, um, nicotine is a, a known addictive substance, whereas, um, sugar is not actually addictive. And this is surprising to a lot of people. Everyone thinks sugar is addictive. Um, they did a bunch of studies on rats and sugar, the rats only displayed addictive behavior when they were, um, restricted from having sugar for certain parts of their day. Mm-hmm. It was like the restriction created their addiction. 
which is fascinating. The rats that oh, had right. access to sugar water all day didn't show any addictive um, mm-hmm. properties to that sugar. So, you know, taking a comparison of like nicotine and all the terrible substances that go into a cigarette and saying, oh, it's the same as high fructose corn, corn syrup. Like that's, that's dangerous. And it's just not true. You know, am I, am I claiming that high fructose corn syrup is good for the body or good for the cellular, you know, cellular metabolism? No, I'm not claiming that. I am claiming that when taught to listen to the body, all those, like she had listed, like all these, this, this post sugar crash that the body goes through after having like sugar or high fructose corn syrup, you know, I believe that we can hear that crash. We could feel that crash. You didn't have to have someone else telling you like, oh, you're, you're crashing now. Like your body will feel that crash. And when we become more and more sensitized to that, um, and we develop a healthy relationship with ourselves (laughs) and our self-esteem, you eventually want to step away from those kinds of negative feelings on your body. You know, I wouldn't even be too surprised (laughs) if we can like, shift over intuitive eating to the smoking world like i wonder if people who smoke if they were taught to be mindful of how they felt before during after smoking what brought them to the cigarette you know <laughs> <You're> like hilarious <laughs> totally like let's take the same approach like why not you know i'll tell you why not because cigarettes is mostly a man world and food is mostly a woman world and women talk about what goes on in the <laughs> you know in the we have to have you for don't. a follow-up conversation then <laughs> oh you're definitely gonna have to delete that because then everyone i was about to call me <laughs> I was about to call me sex sister. <laughs> I am totally keeping this in. Everybody's listening. Oh, we no. are keeping it in. <laughs> I mean, Janine, Janine Roth, who I love, called her book Women, Food, and God. And she was like, yeah, this is a woman thing. Like, let's be real. But yeah. Anyway, of course, this conversation can apply to men. And of course, women smoke cigarettes. But yes. No, no, no. I know, I know what you're talking about. So I want to circle back briefly. I don't know if we really have much to answer here because it's uh, like much more of an institutional systemic issue. Um, We were talking about something in the beginning about the institutional issues and how marketing is fun, uh, not marketing research is funded by large corporations and, and marketing is, you know, based on marketing and what is there to do as an individual? If we have all this sort of like, thrown at us. And we do know that, you know, with all the intuitive eating, with the health at every size, with, you know, food freedom and all that, we also do know that there are foods that are just different and they do different things for our body. How do we live in a world that is almost intentionally trying to manipulate us to eat certain things Mm -hmm. so that some people can make some money? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is why I, I so strongly believe in intuitive eating and health at every size as the voices of the external world get more and more manipulative and louder. Well, the only way to fight that is to make our internal voices louder. It's mm-hmm. to shut out what's coming in from the outside and to start tapping into what's going on on your inside and a really <laughs> in tune body <laughs> can tell really, I really believe this really can tell which foods help it function optimally which foods help it feel best. And, you know, the choices then come much more naturally. You don't have to worry about all the information out there, all the manipulation that's out there, all the systemic failures that are out there. It's like, there's the the last thing to hold on to is your own self. 
and your own mm-hmm. self isn't broken. It really isn't broken. It really yeah. can be trusted. This sort of reminds me, someone was like, oh, you know, after all that, I read a whole thing on, I think it was intermittent fasting. And actually it sort of promotes like something about proteins. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but basically it was saying maybe it's not as good as they said it was. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, that sort of sucks that they were a little bit wrong now. Maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah. Yeah. The, the, New York Times, the New York times, that whole article that came out debunking intuitive, um, intermittent fasting. Sorry. Oh, so then that's what they were talking about. Okay. <laughs> it was like, they were like, oh, intermittent fasting is literally just people who intermittently fast don't have any better health outcomes than people who restrict their caloric intake. It's like the same, it's basically a diet. They just put it under a different title. Right. It just seems a little bit of a shame if you're working so hard to like, you know, intermittent fast and turns out there isn't really much for it. Like, mm, (laughs) I know there was a quote from a doctor who did the research on intermittent fasting and how it actually doesn't work. Um, He was intermittently fasting because he was out to prove how it would work. And when he found out it doesn't, he wrote, he said something like, I started eating breakfast again. Like my family says I'm a much happier person now. <laughs> Eat breakfast. If you're not going to do it for yourself. Do it for your family. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, thank you so exactly. much for coming on. I know that we didn't quite cover everything, but I, I hope that we at least made an impression as a response to the podcast. And um, we definitely have to uncover some of those other things that we didn't talk about. <laughs> But thank you yeah, again. For sure. Oh, it was such a pleasure. And I also do want to say I love Barry Weiss's um podcast. And, you know, I'm I'm grateful that she hosted Dr. Casey Means, who gave us the opportunity to kind of clarify um, you know, that we're not in contradiction to the world of medicine, that we do want to work with science and medicine to bring health into the world, health being a healthy relationship with food as well as you know, healthy or more nutrient dense foods as well. Yeah. Same. No, I love the podcast before I let you go though. Can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Sure. And your sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) I have an Instagram account. It's called intuitively underscore eats. So intuitively eats. Um, I also have a website called intuitively eats.com. That's basically where you could find me. Yeah, Yeah. And your practice is in Israel. My practice in Israel, correct. But I do see so clients over, over, over Zoom. So we're all international now, aren't we? <laughs> well, that's good to know. Do you not have like practice barriers, like licensure laws or? Well, I'm a registered nurse here in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, if I see American clients, I'm seeing them under my American family nurse practitioner and American oh, certified cool. intuitive counselor. Yeah. No. Awesome. I'm not doing anything illegal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you. This was great. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.